really, really great to be here with you today speaking from Psalm 16. I'm really excited about this psalm. Um, I've really enjoyed learning about it over the past week or so. It's, it's only 11 verses, but this psalm, I hope you'll see by the end of today, this psalm kind of really hits at the core of the gospel. I hope that when we finish looking at this psalm today, you'll leave this building giving great thanks to God the Father for Jesus and the union that we have with him. Now, Jamie read the psalm really well for us. You might not have picked up all of that information from the psalm as Jamie read it to us. Some of these things won't seem immediately evident from the first reading of the psalm, but they're there, and I hope you see them today. Can I encourage you this morning to take your leaflet? If you haven't got one already, there's some on the whole table, because inside the leaflet, the the words of Psalm 16 are printed out, and I'd like you to get a pen as well, because we're going to be marking up some of those words today. So if you don't have the text or a pen, um, Lou's going to bring one of those around for you in just a moment. Before we go any further this morning, I want to tell you what I think the big idea of this psalm is. And the, the, the big idea is going to be up on the screen as well. So what's the big idea of this psalm? Here's what I think the big idea is. God will save you, all of you, body and soul, and God will deliver you to everlasting pleasure... If, if he is your safe place of refuge, if he is your portion and your cup, if God is the one about who you can say, apart from you, Lord, I've got no good thing. If you can say that and a few other things that this psalm lists, then God will deliver your body and your soul through death to everlasting life and pleasure. That, I think, is the big idea of this psalm. Do you hear me correctly? There's a terrific promise in this psalm. A really, really great promise. God will deliver you, all of you, your body and your soul, to his everlasting pleasure. But, and there's a but in this psalm, we see it with the word if. We might call it a conditional clause almost in this psalm. God will do this if, if what? If he's your portion and your cup, the psalm says. Or as John Piper puts it, if he is your treasure, if he is your sovereign, if he is your counsellor, if he is your all. If you hold on to him and forsake everything else, if you do that, he will save you. If you live a perfect life, you might say, if you live a life without blemish, always trusting God, he will save you. Well, that gives rise to a big question, doesn't it? Who can do that? Can you? I can't do that. Can King David do it, the one who wrote this psalm? Well, evidence from his life would say no. So then what do we do with this psalm? Why, why is this psalm even in our Bible? Should we just rip it out and throw it away? We can't do that, you could say. Well, I hope by the, time, by the end of our time this morning... This psalm will become a really treasured part of your Bible, a part of the Bible that drives you to praise Jesus. That's the end point. That's where we're going to get to this morning. Uh, We are going to have to do some work to get there, so I hope you've got your pen and the printout of the verses with you. 
Uh, you're going to need them this morning. Well, let's dig into this psalm and come to grips with how it kind of works for us. Structurally, the psalm has two, two big sections. You might like to mark that up on your, your printout. The first section runs from verse 1 through to verse 8. And the second section from verse 9 through to verse 11. Now, Christopher Ash, who Jack spoke about last week and has written this great book on the Psalms and how to read them, he's labelled the first section, that's, that's 1 to 8, as all about David's desires. So you might like to write desires next to that section in the psalm. And the second section, verses 9 to 11, is all about David's destiny. Desires and destiny. And I think they're really helpful labels. So you might like to put that on your printout. Desires and destiny. But before we look at David's desires and, and ultimately his destiny, I want you to see his petition. It's right there at the start of the psalm. Keep me safe my God. Very simple petition, keep me safe, my God. Now, unlike last week when we looked at Psalm 3 together, there's no context given here. We don't don't know exactly what David wants protection from at this time. And maybe he prayed this psalm as he was searching for those pebbles in the river to hurl at Goliath, or, or maybe he sang these words as he marched into one of his battles. We don't really know But the petition is for safety. I wonder today if you're petitioning God for a similar thing, for protection, for safety. Now, according to to Maslow and his hierarchy of needs, once we can breathe and once we can eat and drink, the next most important thing for us as people is to have safety. Right up there in terms of our human needs. So I imagine that many of us have if not today, have at some point been petitioning God for safety and for protection. David starts his psalm by saying, keep me safe, my God. And then right in the middle of verse 1, we read a small word, just three letters, F-O-R, for. And I want you to underline this word in your printout today, underline the word for. Because this word, together with its counterpart down in verse 9, therefore... These two words are integral to the logic of the psalm as we read it today. So please take your pen, underline the word for in verse 1, and then while you're at it, go down to verse 9 and underline the word therefore. And you might like to join those words with like a dotted line or a line. The for in verse 1, the therefore in verse 9. David petitions God to keep him safe. Why? For or because he takes refuge in God. Now, for and because have a similar meaning, don't they? Keep me safe, God, because I'm seeking refuge in you. For in you I seek refuge. Now, I find this idea of refuge this week really, really helpful. I don't use refuge, that word, in my speech very often. I don't know about you, but it is a lovely word, isn't it? As I think about it, the thing that comes to my mind is the idea of escaping through the flames. Maybe that's because I see this word often used in the context of bushfires, right? Many of you will know that I've been building a brick oven in my backyard. It's like the project that keeps on going, never seems to end. And I've made a few trips up to Littlehampton to the, the brick uh, factory up there. And as you drive into the town of Littlehampton, on the side of the road, there's a little blue sign that says bushfire, last resort. I think Tom's got the photo of it on the screen. You might not be able to see the, the little blue sign. But there it is. It says bushfire, last resort, refuge. And it points to a big oval. It's a, a kind of a cleared space that you go to when all else fails, when all of your bushfire plans don't work, 
The refuge is the place you escape. It's a place of safety where nothing else will work. And David calls God his refuge. Let me read on for what David says in the next few verses. David says, I say to the, say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I say are the holy people who are in the land. They are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. You know, I think the best way for us to read these verses, the first section, verses 2 to 8 of this psalm, is to see them as being governed by that little word for in verse 1. I think it's a bit like each of these verses are kind of dot points that sit under that word for. So in a way, David's saying, keep me safe, Lord, because, or for, because apart from you I have no good thing. Keep me safe because you alone are my portion and my cup. Keep me safe because you've given good things to me. Keep me safe because I seek your counsel. Christopher Ash in his book suggests that these verses are all about David and his desires, what he wants. So I'm paraphrasing Christopher Ash here a bit, but in verse 2, David wills to obey God as his master. That's his desire. He won't look anywhere else. In verse 3, we see that David takes delight in those who share that desire, those who know God. In verse 4, we see that David thinks that those who pursue other gods, they'll be worse off. And so he desires God alone. He won't praise other gods or make offerings to them. In verse 5, we see David declaring that God alone is his portion and his cup. In other words, his desire is to choose God alone. I think this is like one of those table images, those food images, isn't it? I wonder what your favourite meal is. What's the meal that you would choose? Or what's the portion of the roast chook that you most want to eat? What cut of meat do you most desire? Maybe it's a grass-fed ribeye steak. And when it comes to the cup, what is it that you desire? Well, maybe to go with that ribeye steak, it's a, a classic Barossa Shiraz, maybe something from Granite Creek. For David, God is his ribeye steak and his red wine. God is the one who nourishes and sustains. That's the desire of his heart. The portion and the cup that he selects, he chooses. Verse 6, it goes on to remind us that, 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 that uh, this is the song of a warrior king. He says, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. David has fought and displaced those in the promised land. And now he can say that God has given him those good things, the good land. In verse 7, we see David praising God as the one who he goes to for counsel. His instruction comes from God. And in verse 8, we see that David keeps his eyes on the Lord. So what's David saying in these verses? What's verses 1 to 8 all about? Well, surely David is expressing what he wants to be like. 
He's expressing his love for God and his desire for God and showing that nothing will get in the way of that desire. For seven verses, he's been exalting God, longing for God's refuge. He's called God his counselor, his portion and cup, the good thing. He said that he has eyes for God alone. You could say that his desire is single-minded and pure and confident. I wonder how these verses then leave you feeling this morning. Not how you want to feel, but do they describe how you actually are? Do you have a a single-minded, pure, confident desire for God? Is God the portion in the cup that you would choose day in and day out? Does God have your unswerving attention? Because that's the gist of what David's saying about himself in verses 1 to 8. Confident, pure, unswerving desire for God. Well, now we get to the the next word that you underlined there at the start of verse 9, the therefore. It's part of the logic in this psalm or the flow of the psalm. And it works sort of like a demand, doesn't it? David's saying, because my desire is perfectly, always, for you only, God, In a way, he's saying, you're obligated to save me, to deliver me. Here's what Christopher Ash says again. Because his, that's David's, because David's desire is single and pure, he is confident that his destiny is secure. In other words, up until this point, David has petitioned God to keep him safe. And his argument has been, God, you must do this because my desire for you is single-minded and pure. You're my cup and portion. And because of that, you must save me. That's how the therefore of this passage works. Here's the flow one more time. David says, keep me safe because my desire for you is pure and single-minded. Therefore, I am glad and I can rejoice because I know that my God will protect me. Do you see the logic in the passage? See how it works? Well, here's the implication for us then. If our desire is pure and single-minded towards God, if we live a sinful, sin, sinless life, a pure life, a sinless life, then, then God is obligated in the same way to save us, isn't he? You see the argument? In verse 9, we see that David can rejoice and rest securely knowing that that God will not abandon him, not to the realm of the dead. We see that his body won't see decay. Now take it what, what David means here is that God won't either abandon his soul or his body, that he'll preserve both, that the, the whole of David will be preserved. And then in verse 11, we see that David will be filled with joy at the eternal pleasures of God. Again, let me keep jumping at home. Because David's desires are single and pure, his destiny is secure. He won't die. Instead, he'll be filled with the eternal pleasures of God. Let me just read the rest of these verses, verses 9 to 11, with you. I think the summary is, because my desire for you is, because my desire is for you alone, therefore, in verse 9, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. 
You see how this passage then kind of makes sense of the big idea that I had at the start? God will save you, all of you, body and soul, and God will deliver you to his everlasting pleasure if God is your safe place of refuge, if he is your portion and cup, if he is the one who you can say, apart from you, Lord, I have no good thing. I hope you got the flow of the psalm. Does it make sense? If your desires are single and pure and focused exclusively on God, then he will preserve your body and soul. But, and this is the really big thing, right? But, I can't say these things. I can't say the things of verses 1 to 8. I mean, I can some of the time, and, and most of the time I might want to be able to say these things, but the reality is, verses 1 to 8 are not exclusively true of me. Sure, I can stand here today and say, I want God to be my portion in my cup. And I desire to be able to choose him only. But the truth is, so often in my sinfulness, I turn to other sources of security. I want to be able to say that apart from God I have no good thing. And yet history reminds me that I try to fill my life with other stuff. Toys, games, tools. I want my identity to be exclusively tied to being a child of God. And yet when I introduce myself, I might say I'm a dad, I'm a husband, I'm an Australian, I'm a pastor. Very infrequently will I tell people that I'm a child of God. I wonder about you this morning. Can you say the things of verses 1 to 8 in the same way that David's written them? And here's the thing, unless you're very different from me, and I suspect you're not, our actions and our thoughts don't reflect verses 1 to 8 of this psalm. Our desire is not solely focused on God and his purposes. That's the reality for us. And yet, if you think about it, that's also the reality for David, right? Was his desire solely for God? Of course not. I mean, think about the night he strolled around on his rooftop and and saw Bathsheba having a bath in the distance. At least at that point, his desire was not solely focused on God. It was in a very different place. So David can't really say the words of this psalm with integrity either, can he? So what then do we do with this psalm? If David can't live it out... If we can't live it out today, why has it been included in our Bibles? What's the point of it? I think it's two things. Firstly, it gives us good information about God. If your desire and your life and your actions are for God alone, if that were possible, he will deliver your body and soul to everlasting pleasure. There's a truth there that I like hearing. If we live a sinless life, God will deliver us, save us. But I think the main reason why this psalm is in our Bible is that it drives us straight to the person of Jesus. See, this is one of those psalms that just rings the gospel bell really clearly. Let me remind you about a few things about Jesus. Jesus was a descendant of David. He was the promised king. He's our king today. And although he was a king like David, he was different to David and he's different to us. Although he's fully human, his desire was single-minded and his actions were perfect. His life was sinless. 
Now, we can't say the words of verses 1 to 8, not with integrity, not on our own, and and neither can King David, but Jesus can. Now, today you might be sitting there thinking, oh, hang on, how do you know all of Jesus' thoughts and his actions? I mean, we only know what was written about him, and that's, that's true. Perhaps behind closed doors, he might have had the occasional sinful thought. Maybe... Maybe that's true. Well, the proof, they say, is in the pudding, don't they? The proof here is that Jesus was not abandoned. His body did not see decay. He died on the cross and was buried, but three days later he rose. The proof, just like the psalm says, is that his body did not see decay. And the clincher for all of this, the clincher for it, is that the Apostle Peter, with all of his apostolic authority, sees this psalm in the same way. He sees the risen Jesus as the man of Psalm 16. He uses Psalm 16 in his sermon on the day of Pentecost, in that first day of Pentecost. We looked at this as a church not that long ago, but I want to take you back there. The words of, um, the, some of the words of Peter's sermon are going to come from the screen behind me. I'm going to read from Acts chapter 2. And I'm going to read from verse 22. This is part of Peter's argument about who Jesus is. He says this, Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Verse 25. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. See, Psalm 16. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Psalm 16. And then this is what Peter goes on to say. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we're all witnesses of it. Do you see what the Apostle Peter is saying? Jesus was killed on the cross, and yet his body didn't see decay. David, on the other hand, he's buried in the tomb. His body's here to this day, says Peter. Therefore, the man of Psalm 16, the one who desires God with a single-minded intensity, pure, confident, that wasn't David. That man is Jesus, the Messiah. It's Jesus who has the perfect relationship with God the Father. It's Jesus whose desires are Godward all the time. And therefore, it's Jesus who was not abandoned to the grave. Can you see the logic? And you see how amazing this psalm is then, that that David wrote this thinking of King Jesus. See, none of us are perfect. David wasn't. We all fall short of God. But Jesus was and is perfect. And if you doubt that, here's the acid test, the proof. His body wasn't abandoned to the grave. 
He's now seated at the right hand of God the Father, enjoying those eternal pleasures that this psalm speaks about. I've come a long way today. I hope you're making sense of the flow and the logic in the psalm. But here's one more question for us. What does that mean for us then? So you and I are going to still struggle to have a single-minded desire for God, especially if the past is anything to go by. At least in my case, we fail before we even get started sometimes. So where do we go with this? How do we sing this psalm? How do we read this psalm? Can we look forward to the eternal pleasures that this psalm speaks of? Can we look forward to new bodies and resurrection life? The answer, of course, is that we can read and can sing this psalm, but we do it through the person of Jesus. Because in Jesus, we too have the hope of resurrection bodies. You might remember if you were here with us last week when Jack was taking us through Psalm 3, that we share in the blessings of the King. That was true in Psalm 3. It's also true here. We share in the blessings of King Jesus. One more passage before we finish up this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the the great gospel chapter of the Bible. I'm going to read to you from verse 20. I think it'll be on the screen as well. It says this, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn... Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Psalm 16 looks forward to the one who will come, that's Jesus, the one who will be raised from the dead. But here in 1 Corinthians, we read that those who are united to King Jesus, we too will share in his resurrection. Jesus is the example of this, but when he returns, those who belong to him well, we'll be raised as well. Now, we can't, in all honesty, I don't think, live out the words of verses 1 to 8 of Psalm 16. None of us have that single-minded, pure devotion and desire towards God. But that doesn't mean the benefits of verses 9 to 11 are beyond us. No, they are ours, not because we deserve them, but because we share in the blessings of King Jesus. This morning, do you know Jesus as your king? Because that's how we share in those blessings. If you're here today just wanting to know a little bit more about Jesus, I want you to see him today as the perfect person who could live out verses 1 to 8. He could sing the words of this psalm with great confidence and integrity. Go and read some of the Gospels if you want to find out more about what he was like as a person. Read Mark or read Matthew. I'd love to talk more about who Jesus was with you if you've got questions. If you're here today, though, as someone who does know Jesus, I hope you go home today praising him even more, giving thanks that you belong to King Jesus, that we share in his blessings. Our future resurrection, our promise of life in the next age, is not due to our own efforts, but because we belong to him. United with him. We can sing and we can say this psalm together. We can come to God seeking refuge in his protection because we share in the benefits of the king. 
We can sing this psalm with integrity today. Because we're united with Jesus. And that means the promises of this psalm extend to us as well. Not because of what we've done, but because of who Jesus is. And that, I hope, drives us to the foot of his throne, there to praise him for his goodness to us. Well, what I'd like to do with you now is we're going to say the words of this psalm together now that we've unpacked it in some detail. And I hope you can join with me in saying these words with great integrity, knowing that these are Jesus' words and that we're united with him. We're going to say this as a prayer, and then Jack's going to lead us through a song. Now, you've got the printout of the words in front of you, and it'll come from the screen otherwise. You pray this psalm with me. Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Amen.